particularly this church, and we are grateful to him for that every day. All right, Ephesians chapter 5, a message that, uh, verse 18, this message is more about what this verse is not than what it is. Next week's message will be about what this verse is about. Ephesians 5, 18 says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, and here's the point we will follow, but be filled with the Spirit. It is a command. Do you notice that? You be filled, that's what Paul's saying, with the Spirit. He is making a command not to lost people, but to who? The church. Be filled with the Spirit. Some of us uh, would read that passage, and we in our minds believe that passage, but we deny the power of that passage. We can deny the power of that passage in two ways. One is to deny the prior work of the Spirit in the life that is filled. We're going to talk about the prior work today. And the other way is to be to be. The prior work having been done on your life, you deny the possibility that the filling can happen. One is the error of a, of a section of the a specific, specific section of the church, the evangelical church, known as the charismatic third wave movement. They deny often, whether they mean it or not, they deny the power of the prior work of regeneration. Because they would say, you cannot be a Christian unless you get the subsequent filling of the Spirit. That your salvation and the assurance of your salvation only comes if you are filled with the Holy Spirit in their terms, baptized in the Spirit, and in their terms, that specifically means either you have spoken in tongues, most likely, or you have performed some kind of miracle, or a miracle has been performed on you. So they deny this verse by denying the prior work of the Holy Spirit. But I don't have charismatics in my congregation. If you are, you're hiding yourself really well. I haven't heard you one time in eight years. We deny the power of this passage through next week's sermon. We don't believe that after we're regenerate, the Holy Spirit does one thing in our life. Oh, he had to make me alive. But now, I'm on my own. Nothing the little elbow grease of sanctification on my part can't do. And so, it's a two-part sermon series that's topositional. That means it's topical exposition. Okay? And, uh, and we're going to move from this passage. This, this passage is just going to kind of, you might say, where did this come from? Are you forcing this? No, I believe it's a great problem within our church. And I think that both errors come from a misunderstanding of God's intent for us and His work through the Holy Spirit. We, we both misunderstand it. And it's quite possible that even though we think we understand what God has done to bring us to salvation, we really don't know what He has done. And we don't know what He's doing to bring people to salvation. So this is very needful, I think. But be filled with the Spirit. J.I. Packer <clears throat> says this. He says, Regeneration is a New Testament concept that grew, it seems, out of a parabolic picture phrase that Jesus used to show Nicodemus the inwardness and depth of the change that even religious Jews must undergo if they were ever to see and enter the kingdom of God and so have eternal life. This picture is in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 15. Jesus pictured the change that is needed to enter the kingdom of God as being born again. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The Greek there indicates that better translation in English would be, if you are not born from above, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And it's from this very phrase, the phrase of our Lord Jesus, that a whole New Testament doctrine opens up to us and the apostles emphasize throughout the scripture in various ways, this picture of being born from above. 
And, I, and it's this picture that I want to talk about. It's this statement that I want to talk about. And um, <clears throat> before we move on into the meat of the sermon, I want to bring one more quote. This is a long quote. I know it's dangerous. I'm reading to you. But Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, probably, in my mind, is one of the greatest preachers ever. And he is one of the most picturesque uh, exemplars of the scripture that I've ever, ever read. Spurgeon says this, "You You may educate a nature until it attains the highest point, but you cannot educate an old nature into a new one. You may educate a horse, but you cannot educate it into a man. You shall train the bird that sits upon your finger, but you cannot train a limpet into an eagle, nor is it possible for you to train by the best instruction the natural man into a spiritual man. Between the two, there is still a great gulf fixed. Our problem is not education. Don't believe the liberals. You don't need to know more. You need to be changed by the Spirit of God. You can sit in these pews and you can sit in small group Bible studies and you can read your Bible at home until you die. Unless the Spirit of God acts on your inward man and makes you new, you'll bust hell wide open. I don't think we really believe that. Because our solution to a lost man is not the solution of the apostles who said, repent and believe. They didn't tell him to go home and do a 10-week study. They didn't tell him to read his Bible. Not a lost man. They never commanded them to read their Bibles. That is, that is educating them. into. They preached the Word of God, and they commanded the man repent and believe. They exerted the outward call of salvation. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't use the reading of His Word. He does. He does. But I think we are in an error in our mind, in, in, in our church, we are guilty often of elevating thinking to a place that we can convert a soul by thinking and by causing them to think. You can't convert someone that way. That's why you're so frustrated in your evangelism. That's why you go home and tell your wife, that moron don't get it. I don't know how else to say it. It's not a matter of saying or thinking. It's a matter of the Spirit of God falling. When's the last time you shared the gospel and left the, left the meeting praying that God would do what only God can do? When's the last time you laid awake at night and prayed for your children that God would not cause them to think better, but that God would cause them to be made new? When's the last time you confessed to your children, I can't make you a Christian? Sitting under this catechism, this Bible teaching, it can't make you a Christian. Only God can make you a Christian. You see, it's our pride and arrogance that leads us to think that if we preach right and think right and do right, that God will accept us and that we will somehow through that manipulate God to let His Spirit fall on that person. We're not dependent. I'm not and you're not very often, on the work of God in salvation. We talk about it, but we don't live that way. C.H. Spurgeon says this. I'm skipping the middle part. Can another man help us out of such a nature into a state of grace? Talking about out of the fallen nature. Can another man help us out of such a nature into a state of grace? Can you help your neighbor out of a state of fallenness? Can you make him new? Can you give him the state of grace? By no means. As man is powerless for himself, so he is powerless for his fellow. How then is it to be done? The Spirit of God alone can do it. Oh, sirs, this is a great mystery, but you must know it if you would, if you would be saved. It is a solemn secret, but it is one that must be known in your conscience or else you must be shut out from heaven. The Spirit of God must make you new. You must be born again. 
If a man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The same power which raised Christ Jesus from the dead must be exerted in raising us from the dead. The very same omnipotence or all-powerfulness without which angels or worms could not have had a being must again step forth the creative, he's talking about the creative power of God that created angels and worms and humans must step forward again to do what? And do as great a work as it did at the first creation in making us anew in Christ Jesus our Lord. The second creation is as powerful and as magnificent as the first creation. And it is just as impossible. Just like God created everything out of nothing, He creates living beings out of dead beings. You say, well, I just, don't, I just don't know if I can believe that God created everything out of nothing. I think he must have been bound to use some kind of evolutionary process to bring the world about. Well, then you must not believe in either in the spirit regeneration because they're both equally magnificent and impossible. Salvation is such that when you finish preaching it, the people ought to say to you, who then can be saved? You see, we don't preach many sermons and we don't talk to our friends and neighbors and relatives about the fact that camels can't go through the eyes of needles. That's the way Jesus preached the gospel. Jesus stood in front of the crowd and said, it is as likely for you to get saved as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And I've read all of the research and all the archaeological articles about there was a gate known as a needle and that they had to make the camels take their burdens off and crawl on their knees through a narrow gate that they barely fit through and I guess fat camels couldn't get through. I don't know. I've read all that. To me, that's hogwash. That's trying to make it something that's not. The fact is, those camels, as hard as it might be, could get through that gate. And the fact is, lost men cannot get through the gate of the kingdom of God by their self, no matter how hard they try. And you can't take enough burdens off of them so they'll fit. Jesus meant exactly what he said. He can't fit through the eye of a needle. He cannot fit through the eye of a needle. If it had been that gate they're talking about, the disciples would not have followed his statement by saying, who then can be saved? They would have said, oh yeah, you know, I know exactly what he means. It's going to be the people who try real hard. That's how they're going to get saved. They didn't come back with that response to his teaching. They said, this is impossible. And he said, with man it is impossible, but with God, what? All things are possible. Stop speaking that over the line at Walmart and you need to get home in five minutes. That's making the text frivolous. I need to get home in five minutes. There's 80 people in this line at Walmart, but it's impossible. But with God, it's possible. No, that's silly. That's ludicrous. You're not going to get home in five minutes. You live 20 minutes away. You should have planned better. Showed up at Walmart earlier. Shop faster. Don't blame it on God. That text doesn't just mean anything. It means it's impossible for someone to be saved. But with God, it's not impossible. That's the point of regeneration. When you get done presenting the gospel, a lost man ought to sit and soak on the fact that they cannot be saved. If you haven't brought them there, if you haven't brought yourself there, if you've never been there, I would say like Spurgeon, you're not saved. You're just not. He goes on to say, this was the staple. This preaching of the regeneration was the staple of Whitfield, George Whitfield, the great Methodist circuit-riding evangelist. This was the staple preaching of Whitfield. Can you imagine an evangelist in our day traveling around the countryside telling people, you can't get saved. No, we're having pizza night and telling them to come forward and sign a contract with God. Whitfield said, don't worry about coming forward. You can't get saved. Come forward won't get you saved. Hear me preach won't get you saved. 
And it was by this preaching that he was made as the mighty angel flying through the midst of heaven, preaching the everlasting gospel to every creature. He was always great upon that which he called the great R, capital R, regeneration. Whenever you heard him, the three R's came out clearly. Ruin, regeneration, redemption, total depravity, monergistic or God's work, Saving, making dead men alive through redemption, the work of Jesus Christ. That was what the evangelist preached. Man ruined, wholly ruined, hopelessly, helplessly, eternally ruined. Man regenerated by the Spirit of God. And by the Spirit of God alone, wholly made a new creature in Christ. Man redeemed, redeemed by precious blood from all his sin. Not by works of righteousness, not by deeds of the law, not by ceremonies, prayers, and resolutions, but by the precious blood of Christ. Oh, we must be very pointed and very plain about regeneration. For this is the very heart of the matter. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's good preaching. Is it any wonder 25,000 people showed up every time the man spoke the word of God to hear him preach often on one word (laughs) or one small phrase? Because he was shot through with the glory of God in salvation. And I am too, and I hope you are. Now, I'd say buckle your seatbelt. We're going to cover a lot of ground in a little bit of time. There's a lot of confusion in our day about this thing known as regeneration. There are those who believe, as I said earlier, that it doesn't really happen by the power of God alone, but it's a synergistic work. Synergistic is just a way of saying God and man working together to bring about salvation or new life. And then there is the camp, which I place myself in, and I believe it is the biblical and only biblical camp of the gospel, which is monergistic. That means mono meaning one. It is a single work. Regeneration is a single work. God's work and God alone. I can't regenerate myself. You can't regenerate yourself. And if we can't regenerate or make ourselves alive, how can we make anybody else alive? Through our work. And so we see in Ephesians 5.18 that this is not the work that Paul is talking about. It can't be. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's commanding them to, to do something, to be involved in it. And so it can't be this previous work of regeneration. I want to show you clearly from Ephesians that it's not the case. Turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul outlines for us the eternal work of God in salvation, beginning in verse 4, where he says that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then in verses 7 through 11, where he emphasizes the work of Christ in salvation. That he, being the only righteous one, offered up himself as an offer for redemption. And he redeemed us on the cross and through his perfect and sinless law-abiding life. And then he transitions in verse 12 and he begins to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation, not, not in filling. That's what he's talking about in Ephesians 5. That's not what he's talking about here. Look what he says in Ephesians 1 verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is a prior work. This is something that, uh, that no man does for himself. This is God setting his elect apart, sealing them with his blessed Holy Spirit. Sealing them with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. He makes us alive and He seals us unto the day of redemption. He guarantees it to us. That which we could not do, He has done. And then, by doing that which we could not do, making us alive, He guarantees we will be alive when Christ comes again and we will enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's what Paul says about regeneration. That's not what he's talking about in Ephesians 5. The work of the Holy Spirit is complex. It's not convoluted, but it is complex. Okay? And the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is very complex. I'm, trying, I'm going to try to make it very simple in two weeks. What we're talking about today is regeneration. 
the work of the Spirit in our salvation. Okay? Specifically, we're going to talk, even though I've just read a passage on the ceiling, we're going to talk specifically about what he does so that we might believe the prior work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, we have to first understand what is he working on? What is the Spirit of God working on? What What does he have to work with when he comes to us who are lost men? What does he do? I never will forget as a, as a, I think I was in the ninth grade, ninth or tenth grade, we had Bible class at my school. And in the Bible class, the, the man who taught our Bible class showed a film one day about, um, I don't really know what the film was about. It, I think it was about backmasking, if I'm not mistaken. And, and that's a crazy concept. But anyway, that these really intelligent rock singers from the 70s started putting hidden messages underneath their outward. Uh, so, so when you played their messages backwards, it said secret things. They would lead you to Satan. Tells you a little bit about my experience growing up. <clears throat> but in the, I don't even know why they put it in there, but in the tape, that we watched in Bible class, there was this emergency room. ICU unit kind of thing set up. It was cheesy, awful acting. And there's this guy laying in the bed, and he's got all these tubes on him, and the heart monitor's beeping, and and the respiration machine is going. and And the man walks in and says, this is who you were before Christ. No. No, that's not what the Bible says. What does the Spirit have to work with when He regenerates? What is He doing? How do we know it's a work that only God does? Well, because Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 1 through 3. How does Paul see us? In the ICU with the respirator going and the heart monitor beeping and we're barely alive? And you were dead. Kind of blows that out. Would have been better to make the, it would have been better to make the film, the little intro film for that for that uh, episode, in the morgue. With cold dead bodies, and he said, "This is who you were." But see, that doesn't work real well when we're trying to motivate people to work hard to get in heaven. That doesn't preach real real well at the supper table when you're trying to guilt your children into being better forms of themselves. So your life will be easier. Because that assumes some power that they have. Even if it's minimal, there's power and they can be better. And the truth is, what you need to tell them is, you're dead in your sins. I love you, but you're dead in your sins. You don't know Christ. Christ has not become real to you. You have not been made alive yet. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So what did he have to work with? Dead men. What do dead men do? It it tells us what they do. It's interesting. Spiritually dead people are not in the morgue literally laying out on a cold slab. They're moving and breathing though they are dead. Look what it says they do. They're walking following the course of this world. What does that mean? They're in open rebellion against God. They have seen the design of God and they have denied it. And they say, I'd rather be along with my friends. I'd rather go in rebellion against Jesus Christ, following the prince of the power of the air. What are dead men doing? They're following Satan. This isn't just some harmless activity. Boys will be boys. Adolescents will be adolescents. No, they're following the wisdom of this world, and they are following Satan. Satan worship is lost condition. When you're in your lost condition, you worship Satan. Demons, doctrines of demons, that's that's who you are. If you're here today without Christ, you have rejected the word of God, you're a Satan worshiper. You're walking according to the course of this world, you're following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So, our condition, what does the Spirit have to work with with a lost man? Dead men, rebels, 
those who are following Satan and worshiping him, living in disobedience, fulfilling their own fleshly desires. Paul describes them in every letter that he writes. Every letter that Paul pens, he describes the fallen condition, who you are outside of Christ. Unless we come to grips with the fact that lost men are truly lost and dead, we will preach a false gospel. We will preach a gospel that is tainted at best and just outright false at worst. We will make deals that God never made. Because see, God and His Christ are not held hostage by dead rebels. And this is no hostage situation whereby we work for the best deal we can get. That's the way we sell salvation in this day, I'm afraid. I've been guilty of it. I go back and look at sermons I preached when I was 16, 17, 18 years old. By the way, I was lost. We can talk about that some other time. And I was continually treating people like they were captive to the, against their will to this power outside themselves. And they were truly innocent. Poor, pitiful people. They're trapped. Satan's got them hemmed up in a room and they can't get out. They really would come to Jesus, but Satan's got the gun of immorality pointed at them and it's just too much for them to overcome. And then, the way I preached was that the Holy Spirit and Christ, more particularly, showed up on the scene with his bullhorn and shouted some commands into the building and started saying, hey, pick up the phone, Satan, let's talk. And they started dealing. What will it take for me to get some of those people out? And Satan set the terms of release, and Jesus negotiated for better terms. Until finally he got the best deal he could get, and then he took it. And he set as many free as he could. But poor helpless Jesus, he's just a co-equal with Satan. They're working hard against one another, and hopefully he'll overcome for these people I'm preaching to. That's blasphemous. Jesus is not a hostage negotiator. And the people in the room are not hostages. They're there throwing a party. That's what the text says. The door's wide open. Jesus crucified outside. And there's a messenger saying, look to him and be saved. If you look to him, you'll be saved. And the people inside the room could care less. They're throwing a party. They're looking out that open door. Jesus in mockery. And they're saying, man, I wouldn't go out there if you gave me a million dollars. I could care less about all that. It's important we understand regeneration. It's important we understand what are we working with when we're working with dead men. What does the Spirit act on? He acts on dead, rebellious sons of Satan. That's who he works on. And oh, we better be glad he works on them. What does the Spirit work on? Then what, what does he do? What does the Spirit do? Turn with me to John chapter 3. This great picture given to us by Jesus Christ himself when approached by a good man, a Pharisee. Now, when I describe them as a party scene, you immediately think about the text that I just read, you know, debauchery, and you think about, man, they're in there. And, but listen, there's more than just the party hard guys at the party, okay? You got the wallflowers, too. That's who the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and all you self-righteous people are. You're not partaking in all the bad things everybody else is doing in the room. You're kind of standing out from the crowd, you know. You're standing back, but you're looking out the door. Jesus, with your Coke in your hand, by the way, it's in a solo cup, so everybody thinks you're drinking, but you're really not. You're maintaining your good face, you know. And you're looking at all the parties. You're thinking, man, I'm glad I'm not like them. And you're saying prayers. Jesus talked about your prayers. You went up to the temple with the, with the tax collector, and you say, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like this man. A liar, a thief, a lawbreaker. I'm a good man. You're standing against the wall. You're looking at the people out there having a good time. You're saying, man, they may be having a good time, but I'm better than they are. And you're looking out the door, Jesus crucified, and the messenger saying, look to him and be saved. And you're saying, why well, I need to look at him? I'm good. 
I'm not acting like all these people. I'm a righteous person. Look at that guy. That's scum of the earth over there. But me, I'm, 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 I'm acceptable. I'm working hard. God loves me. He's, he'll reward me. I don't need Jesus. See, there's two kinds of people in the room. They're both dead. One is living it up. The other is living in denial. They want so bad inside themselves to break the law of God, but they're scared to do it. And so they maintain their righteousness, their righteousness, in condemning their fellow man, saying, I'm better. I'm outside. I'm above. I'm separate from these people. But I don't need Jesus. That was Nicodemus. Had this been a lost Gentile coming to Jesus, the Jews would have said, well, that's exactly what Jesus should have said to them. They got to have some help. Man, they're not in the covenant. We are. Notice that it's not a woman coming to Jesus. Because then again, the people in that society, both Jews and Gentiles, would have said, well, sure, women need help. Poor, pitiful women, they're second class. I mean, you know, they bless their heart. They're doing the best they can, but they ain't got any hope. Notice that this was not a Gentile, it was not a woman. It wasn't even a tax collector or a great sinner. Because there again, they would have said, well, obviously, Jesus, they can't see the kingdom of God. They're bad people. Notice that God providentially brings to us in John chapter 3 a man who is the head of his nation and is the leader of righteousness. This is the best of the best that comes to Jesus by night. He's a Pharisee. He not only knows the law, but he keeps the law. He's a good Pharisee, and he's a ruling council Pharisee. He's sitting on the council that makes judgments over people's lives, in or out, punishment or no punishment. That's who he is, and he comes to Jesus. See, God doesn't choose to bring us providentially any of these other categories of sinners because they could easily be explained away. Well, yeah, people like that do need a work from above, but I don't. Jesus brings us the best. God providentially brings us the best of mankind. Let me tell you this. There's not one Nicodemus in this room. If Nicodemus was here, he'd be far and away the best man in this room. He'd be the best daddy. He'd be the best husband. He'd be the best religious person, the biggest giver. He would be the most servant-hearted of anybody in this room. Nobody would meet him in righteousness outwardly. Nobody. This is who we're examining, okay, to understand. We've said, what does the Spirit work with? And we're going to see what does he do now. What does he work with? He works with dead men. And Nicodemus is dead. He asked a question about, or he actually doesn't even ask a question. He just says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of above, from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Watch closely. What does he do? What does the Spirit do? We're about to see it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can these things be? And Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? 
truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Talking about himself. And as Moses, now look at this example of salvation. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here, Jesus draws on great spiritual analogy from the Old Testament. We're told that the people of Israel in the wilderness were idolatrous. They were stiff-necked and they were hard-hearted. They rejected the Word of God. Because of their hard-hearted idolatry and rejection of God, God sent a great plague among them, the plague of snakes, fiery serpents, who broke out among the people and began to kill thousands by their bite. When you were bit by this snake, you became immediately sick, fell ill, and died. This was God's outward judgment because of their idolatry and their rejection. Moses goes before God to intercede for the people, and God says, Make for yourself a serpent of bronze. Fashion it onto a pole. Erect the pole in the center of the camp. Command the people that if they're bitten by the snake, look at the serpent in the center of the camp, and they will be healed. That sounds foolish. I don't know about you, but that sounds foolish to me. If somebody turned loose a thousand rattlesnakes in this room, my plan would not be to erect up here a bronze serpent and tell you to sit, stay where you are and look, and you'll be healed. I'd be finding an exit strategy. This is a dire condition that's being shown to us. This is a condition that affected everybody in the camp. Thousands were dying. Not just one or two. People were dropping dead all around. They were being judged immediately for their sin. And God's exit strategy is to look at a serpent on a pole in the center of a camp. Does that sound like foolishness to you? I don't like garden snakes. I sure don't like fiery serpents. I would tell you this. Every person in that camp they came up with another strategy to alleviate their pain and suffering from the snake, died. If they thought, we'll move our tents away from this bed of snakes, they must be coming up from down underneath this bad camp spot. Moses doesn't know how to lead a wilderness trek. We're getting out of here. They died. If they tried to remove the poison, by amputating the leg or the arm or cutting out the flesh where the snake bit, they died. If they tried to get inside their tent and seal it off and protect themselves and defend themselves, they died. The only people who lived in Israel were the ones who looked at the snake on the bronze snake, on the pole in the center of the camp. And by the way, don't read from it that they glanced up there and then went back to what they were doing. This was the posture of the people in the camp of Israel who lived. They didn't do anything else but look at the snake. They didn't ever take their eyes off of it until the plague of snakes was gone. They trusted completely and wholeheartedly in the only plan of salvation. The serpent erected on the pole. Jesus says you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you do the same thing. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless your eyes are fixed on me. And I am the serpent that was erected and lifted on the pole. Look, this was such a powerful cure to the bite of that snake that the people took it and tried to make an idol out of it and did. They worshipped it. God had to grind it into smithereens to get them to stop worshiping. That's how powerful this solution of God was. They began to worship 
the instrument and not the giver of the gift. But they, they were transfixed. They, their, their gaze was locked on the only hope they had, which was the promise of God that if they looked at the serpent, they would live. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. Okay, now we back up in the analogy. The work of the Spirit in regeneration is that He fixes our eyes on the only hope of salvation, Jesus Christ. Okay, who is He working with? Dead men. What does He do? He fixes their eyes on Jesus Christ. The serpent lifted up. What else does He do? This can't be it. I mean, if you take dead people and you point them towards a stake, they can't see it. The other thing that he does, the thing he does to make that significant is he brings the dead man to life. The dead man doesn't bring himself to life. He doesn't do anything to make himself alive. The Spirit of God brings him to life. You must be born from above. It's impossible for you. It's possible for the Spirit to birth you from above. So, if you look at Christ, the Son of Man, as He is lifted up on the cross, and you believe you have eternal life, how does that happen? He makes you born again. He makes you born from above. He makes you alive. Now, it's significant to understand what Jesus, again, is meaning by this. If you don't understand it, you miss it. How is a baby born? A physical baby. I'll go through it. You just shake your head no if I'm wrong at any point. A mother and father plan for a child. We won't get any more descriptive than that. Okay? Baby hadn't done anything yet. God grants life in the womb of that mother. The baby hadn't done anything yet. That little life begins to blossom and grow. The baby hasn't done anything. It receives all of its power for growth from external means, namely the mother. It is nourished and cared for as it grows. It grows in gestation for about 40 weeks. Somewhere around there, the baby still has done nothing. It didn't choose to be born or made, and it didn't choose to grow. All this power is working from the outside to make the baby what the baby is. And then, the sack of water around the baby bursts. We call that pain, where I come from, and suffering. Once you see your wife go through it, you will never be the same. Once she goes through it, you can't ever complain about pain and suffering again in her presence. She will quickly tell you you don't know what pain is. The baby has still done nothing. When that water sack burst, those muscles of the, baby, of, the, of the mother began to push the baby out into the world. The body of the mother is working on the baby to bring it out into the world, to bring it into what we call fullness of life. The baby does something. The baby begins to work against the mother. Negative pressure. Whenever the muscles of the woman contract on the baby, the muscles of the baby contract back. And that supplies the negative pressure necessary to press that child down into the birth canal and out of the birth canal, into life. Every time the mother stops applying pressure, what does the baby do? Oh, it's so disheartening. It retracts. And then the pressure comes again and it goes further towards life. And then when she gets tired and quits pushing, what does it do? It pulls back. The baby is supplying only negative pressure. The baby 
is not birthing itself. It is being acted on from the outside and birthed. Jesus uses this to say, this is how you are saved. You can't be saved and come into eternal life until the power from without you acts on you and presses you into new life. Your only role is resistance. Until you are fully overcome, and then it is submission. The baby eventually submits. The power external is more powerful than them, and the outside power wins, right, in this tug of war. Beautiful analogy of how you were saved and how I was saved. Perfect analogy. You must be born from above. Before you can look at the Savior, you must be born from above. We see what he works on, and we see how he works, what he does in the work. What he does in the work is fixes our eyes, which have just been opened or born for the first time from above on Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does in regeneration, which brings about belief, the gift of God. Okay? One last thing before we end. That middle section, particularly verse 8, may cause you to say, I get the birthing analogy. I see this thing about lifting a serpent up and believing in Jesus, but what in the world? What in the world would Jesus be talking about wind blowing for? What, what is he talking about? The wind blows where it will. And it, you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Where does he get such talk? See, Nicodemus, I'm anticipating that's what Nicodemus is saying. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Be born again. I don't get it. Okay, now I get it. You're saying I can't birth myself, that you've got it, something's got to act on me. And it's the Spirit. I get that I've got to look to you for salvation. I understand that. What is this about the wind blowing? I don't get it. Jesus says, are you not a teacher of the Jews and you don't know what I'm talking about? How are you going to understand things from above if you can't understand earthly analogies? What's earthly about that analogy? Ezekiel 36 is what's earthly about that analogy. This is a strong reprimand to the teacher of the Jews who doesn't know his Bible very well. Nicodemus, are you telling me you're a Pharisee and you've read the Old Testament through and through, time and time again, and you don't understand the earthly analogy of standing on a peak, looking down into a valley full of dead, dry bones, and the wind of God blowing on them? What are you going to do when I teach you something that's not plainly in the Old Testament and clearly exemplified by an earthly example? How will you ever understand? Ezekiel 36 is what the Lord's talking about when he talks about wind blowing. Take your Bible and turn there as we close on this work of regeneration. And what is it? I want our mind to close tightly around the Word of God to us in the Old Testament. Because here's the thing. And this is kind of a lead into next week. The work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant is the same as the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. In other words, what He's doing now, He was doing then. And I know some of you immediately think about John chapter 14, verse 16. And I know some of you immediately think about the day of Pentecost. And what went on there, and you have traditionally, you've been taught or you've heard that that's when the Spirit started working on men. But I believe that's not biblical. One reference to look at in regard to that, just to prep you for next week, is Acts 7, verse 51, the speech that Stephen gives before these Pharisees. He says, you are a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people Rejecting the work of the Spirit like your fathers. In other words, Stephen's saying, the same Spirit that was working in the wilderness on your fathers in the Old Covenant is the same Spirit working now and you're rejecting Him just like they did. 
It got him stoned to death. But it was a powerful message. So the work of the Spirit is not different now than it was in the day of Moses. It's the same. It is is equivalent. And we look here, and that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. I'm not telling you something new, son. I'm not explaining a new concept. This is earthly. My Father's made this clear to you in the past, and you don't get it. Ezekiel 36. You're there. The Lord has lifted up His name above all names. And then He says, in verse 30, uh, excuse me, verse 26, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. It's a promise from God about the Spirit and His work on the sons of disobedience. Thus says the Lord God on that day, I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. I will cause the cities to be inhabited. The waste places shall be rebuilt. The land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. Thus says the Lord God. This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. To increase their people like a flock. Like the flock of sacrifices. Like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This is talking about the fullness of the Spirit running over the banks of Israel. And covering the world. And bringing into Israel all manner of salvation. Those being saved from every tribe and tongue and nation. And the rebuiltness and the replentifulness of the condition is exactly what we see in the Spirit's changing hearts. Not just one or two here or there, but this is a great revival that's being spoken of. Spoken of a great move of God. How does He exemplify this? How does He get the prophet to understand what He's teaching? Here's the earthly analogy. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to the bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinew on you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. These are dead, dry, no marrow bones. They've been there a long time, and they're scattered all over the valley. And God tells the preacher, preach to these dead bones. Preach to them and tell them to live. To stand up and then I will put sinew on them and flesh on them and I will put my spirit in them. Sounds crazy. A lot like the foolishness of preaching as Paul calls it. Stand in front of a group of people. And say to them, live. So he did. He commanded them. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. A sound. 
And behold, Radman, the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there was sinew on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them, no wind in them, no spirit in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the wind, to the breath, to the spirit. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, and they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. You must be born again, Nicodemus. That which is of the flesh is flesh, and that which is of the spirit is spirit. I say to you, you must be born again, Nicodemus. Born from above. You don't understand what I'm telling you, Nicodemus? You don't get it? Really? I've told you an earthly thing. And you don't understand? How can I tell you heavenly things? The wind blows where it will. You hear it, but you don't know where it comes from nor where it goes. Thus it is with the Spirit of God. Jesus is saying, Ezekiel 37 is happening. It's happening all over the world every time somebody believes. Why should you praise Him for your salvation? Because you didn't do anything. Why should you worship Him? Because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were the worshipers of demons and Satan. You were children of disobedience. And you were doing everything your flesh wanted to do. You were bitten by a fiery serpent from the beginning. And you were dead. And he lifted himself up and said, whoever looks at me, like those who looked at the serpent, will have eternal life. How can we look? You must be born again from above by the Spirit. How will that happen? You can't control it. You can't calculate for it. You can't plan for it. It comes from where you know not and goes where you know not. But when it comes, bones rattle. Dead men stand up. Flesh is on those bones. And they begin to breathe. And they begin to believe. Some of you are still in the dead condition. And I would say to you, this is for you. Everything that I've spoken of this morning is for you. You're dead. Live. Believe. Look to Jesus. Don't go home and clean yourself up. Don't go home and make yourself better. By all means, don't start following the rules. Simply where you are today, look to Jesus in faith. And I'll tell you by the power of the Word of God, if that happens, you have eternal life. All of us who are here who have experienced this first work of the Spirit, shame on us for living like dead men. How pitiful we are to have forgotten the miracle that has occurred. Forgive us, Lord, for making it academic, merely facts that we memorize and know and we study like a science. For your wind blows where it will and no man can explain it fully. I tell you, 
Grace Fellowship, we need to fall to our faces, all of us. There's no exception to this. And repent of our pride. Because we're so smart. And we know so much that other churches don't know. And the reality is, we know very little. The reality is, we live out very little. We need to repent this morning. I feel like, maybe not like other Sundays, as we end this sermon, I'm going to give an opportunity for that. I'm not trying to manipulate you or make you walk through an aisle or any of that kind of stuff. That's not what this is about. But I'm telling you, it's a shame and a mockery to take for granted what God has done. That you didn't control and I didn't control. That you didn't earn and I didn't earn. It is a shame and a mockery to the Holy One who was raised up for our salvation. And we just need to confess to God our hard-hearted pride. I really believe that. And we need to move as He is moving us to confession, to repentance.